Okay, good morning. Can you hear me? Am I, am I good? Okay, uh, so my name is Joe Kraft. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar Church, and I'm privileged to have the opportunity to share with you through God's Word as we continue our Gospel Clarity series through the book of Romans. And if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, these will be our focus verses for today's message. I'll give you a second to do that. And uh, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Okay, Romans 6, 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, who you obey either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Heavenly Father, uh, please richly bless our study of your word this morning as we seek to know you more fully, that we may make you known more fully. And I pray that you will remove this morning any distractions from your word, that every individual here will wholeheartedly receive what you specifically intend for each and every one of them. And I pray that what is received will produce an abundant harvest in our lives, that we may glorify you before the world. Amen. You can be seated. I won't make you stand the whole time. The um, fable of the scorpion and the frog. The fable of the scorpion and the frog. So a scorpion wants to cross the river, but he can't swim. So he goes to a frog who can and asks for a ride. And the frog says, if I give you a ride on my back, you're just going to sting me. And the scorpion replies, frog, that would not be in my interest. Because if I stung you, well, then we'd both drown. So the frog thinks about it for a bit and says, okay. So he puts him on his back, uh, puts the scorpion on his back, and he, he starts swimming across the river. Self-interest in the interest of everybody around him. You know, it's a warning to the from the realist to the idealist not to expect anything different from human behavior than what we've always seen in the past just because better behavior would be a good idea. And it's also a warning to, to leaders. We've got a lot of leaders in the room. It's a warning not to make plans. I've seen this happen a million times, not to make plans that depend on everybody doing what they're supposed to do without having adequate measures in place for when they inevitably don't, right? Uh, so like all fables, the story is of the scorpion and frog is intended to give us some practical life wisdom 
But, you know, it also presents a very bleak view of the condition of humankind, implying that we are trapped in our human condition, that, that we have, there's nothing we can do. We can't change. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we're stuck in our brokenness, in our selfishness, and in our destructiveness. And so the fable's kind of a real downer because we've all seen it play out in world history. We've seen it playing out in the world today. We see it within our relationships. And unfortunately, we, we see it within ourselves. So that this, uh, this fable doesn't seem helpful at all. Um, and, you know, why do I need an allegory about amphibians and arachnids to remind me of a well-known painful truth in life without giving any real solution? And, and maybe the unknown author wanted to remind us of another fatal flaw in human nature that against all reason, we keep placing our faith in ourselves to save ourselves we keep telling ourselves, well, you know, perhaps with better education or with increased enlightenment, um, that maybe with more willpower, then we can overcome this human nature problem. Now, there is a church version of this feudal thinking, a churchy version, which kind of goes like this. If I work harder to obey God's laws, I can achieve righteousness. I write standing with God and I can overcome my sinful nature through my willpower i'm just going to work harder but church this isn't the gospel of god we can't fix ourselves but if you are in christ you are not and i want to say it again not a slave to your human nature because jesus has overcome the human nature you were once helpless against by giving you a new nature his nature and paul is going to explain that to you today now, because this futile thinking, this false gospel of legalism or performance was alive and well in the church in Rome, and it's still alive and well today, Paul had this intense passion. I mean, it's an intense passion, which is evident in his longest letter in the Bible to share the gospel of God's grace, which Paul said in the first chapter is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. Only God's grace can save you, save us from the penalty of sin, which with Paul explained to us in the first five chapters of this letter, right? And only God's grace can save us from the power of sin in our lives, which he's going to explain today and throughout the rest of Romans. So this is the transition point, actually, when we started this chapter, okay? So Paul wrote this letter to the Church of Rome, but he certainly intended it for us too. He had this idea, this understanding that others would see this, and this is for you. This is God's word for you. And see, Paul desperately wants you under to understand, not just with your head, but with your heart and your soul, that we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that's it. We had nothing to do with it. It had nothing to do with what we tried to do. Um, and despite our complete hopeless sinfulness, Jesus Christ paid our sin penalty on the cross that we could have eternal life. He did it all. Thank you. And why? 
Because he loves us. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. You see, 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. And just as it's in our nature to sin, it's in God's nature to love. And in fact, according to 1 John 3, 16 and 1 John 4, 19, we can't even know about love without God. And we only love because he first loved us and enabled us to love. So what does, what does this God, who is the source of all love, want from us? Well, to receive his love and to trust, to trust his love and to rest in his love, to be fully blessed by his love, to grow up in his love and to share his love with others. There's nothing more powerful for you this morning, nothing more life-changing than truly accepting and receiving God's gift of love. And since last September, we have been listening to Paul as he has tried to help us understand that. Now, being a parent has kind of helped me understand this God's gift of love because, well, you know, I love my kids and there's nothing they can do about it. Nothing to make me love them more and nothing to make me love them less. I would do anything for my kids. And all that I have, all that I have is theirs. And you know what? I loved them before they could ever love me. Now, what do I want from my kids? I want them to receive my love and to grow up to be loving. That's what I want for them. Nothing else. Um, now, if for some reason, though, my kids were to reject my love or deny my love, guess what? It wouldn't change my love for them at all. And it, it wouldn't change their potential access to my love. The only thing it would change is their potential um, benefit, their ability to receive the benefits of my love. That's all it would change. My love hasn't changed. But you know what? They don't have to fully reject my love to hinder our relationship. Just doubting my love for them would really change things, right? And, and I pray, I really do, I pray that my kids will never think that they have to earn my love through accomplishments, you know, or for, for their works, their efforts, that, that, that somehow my love changes with their performance. I don't want my kids to ever think that because then notions of fear and duty associated with performance would creep in to make them feel like my love is conditional instead of undying. And it would rob them of the joy and security I want them to have in our relationship. So as, an apparent, as a parent, I can completely understand why Paul is so concerned that no one thinks or no one makes somebody else think that God's love is conditional based on our behavior or our accomplishments. Does that make sense? Because we're, we're searching for gospel clarity, right? Does that make sense? Um, now, I hope my kids know that I'm trying to reflect our Heavenly Father's love for His children in the way I love my children, but I also hope they understand the real limits of my example, because as my kids can certainly attest, I'm not a perfect dad, okay? Uh, because, see, well, you don't have to be that excited about that, Chris. Um, see, um, what, so we all know that, um, you know, God made us in His image, in his image to reflect his love out into the world. But 
Adam's sin distorted that image and reflection in us, right? And though God has made me a new creation and empowered me to do what? To fulfill my role as his image bearer, he's empowered me for that. I'm still growing in my ability to reflect that love out to my friends and family and to the communities around me as I grow closer to the source of light and love, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so I'm still growing there. I'm not perfect, but here's the thing. We are loved by the perfect Father in heaven who is in control of everything. And guess what? He's given us an inheritance of everything. An inheritance of everything. And wants nothing more for us than to receive his love and his blessings for eternity. Now, truly understanding that should change everything. Understanding that is powerful and transformational if you can truly understand this love. Though I want you to know that there's a much greater limitation, but the good news of the gospel is through grace. Our Heavenly Father, the Creator now, the one who created you, He can and did change you. He loves us so much that He gave us more than this distant promise of a final heavenly afterlife. He gave us eternal life, which began the moment we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Reference John 17, 3. I will give you a lot of references. I don't have time to read to you, so you can write them down. He gave us a new life when we were born again in Christ. He made us new creations, and he gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the life today which was absolutely impossible for you to live before. In his perfect love, God solved our human nature dilemma described in that fable by giving us a divine nature. Look at 2 Peter 1.4. Or as Cody said a couple weeks ago, he, by putting Christ in our DNA. I, I like that. So when Paul said last week, you know, the last verse, verse 14, I think he said, since sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Um, what he's saying is that what you were powerless to do by trying to obey the law in your broken human nature, God did for you by giving you his nature so that you could do far more than just obey the rules. You could now get this become truly Christ-like. And that is what I want you to think about when you hear the word sanctification. You know, that, that word. Sanctification is being progressively conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which Paul tells us in Romans 8, 29 is not only God's will for your life. If you want to know what God wants for your life, that's it. It's not always God's will, though. It was predestined for you, and it's God's promise for you. So one of my goals for this morning's message is that, one, I stay on time because Colby's right there, and also uh, that you will be really encouraged to fully embrace and pursue with all your might that calling to be Christ-like with great confidence and enthusiasm. Okay, now today Paul is going to pick up where he left off last week by giving us three principles of sanctification. See how he holds up a two? It's three. Three principles of 
sanctification or becoming Christ-like, three essentials for true transformation or life change, which together make up the main point of my message today. So here's the main point. You experience true transformation when you, one, present yourself to the Lord. Present yourself to the Lord. Two, practice obedience to the Lord from your heart. And three, produce the fruit of God's love in your life. Okay, so present, practice, and produce. Okay? Now, Paul begins today at verse 15 by addressing what he knew was going to be an inevitable question from those who had placed their hope for change in obedience to the law. And his question is this, what then, are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? You see, Paul's message that salvation is received and not achieved, and that real change can only, it's only possible by God's gift of salvation. Well, that is more than radical, okay? That is counter to all the world's philosophies and religions, and it's counter to what most people consider just plain common sense, which would cause many people to object to that uh, and say, wait a minute. Now, won't coming out from under the law only lead to more lawlessness? We have laws for good reason, to set standards, to maintain order, to protect, to control, to incentivize right behavior. Now, if salvation is by grace and not by the law, if salvation has nothing to do with how we live, well, then why don't we just live any way we want, right? I mean, um, why should we strive and work hard to live better lives if God's grace is sufficient and he accepts me just as I am? I mean, where is the incentive to change here? Where's the incentive to be better people? Okay. Well, Paul's answer to that question, whether sin will increase because we are trusting in God's grace rather than trusting in the law, is quite emphatic. I'm not sure if our language translates it very well. By no means, with an explanation point, he is saying that's ridiculous. That's absurd. It makes no sense, your question. Okay. Well, why is it absurd? Because Christians have presented themselves to the Lord, which is our first principle or essential element of experiencing transformation along the path that you're on to become Christ-like. Present yourself to the Lord. Now, to explain his point, Paul uses the analogy, starting in verse 16, of the submission of a slave to a master because slavery and servitude were well understood by his audience in that day. And without wasting any of our valuable time explaining the historical context, of slavery then and how it differs from our Western concepts of slavery today, let me just get to the main point of his analogy, which is really powerful for you. Paul is making the point that everyone serves someone or something. Everyone serves someone or something. And we are all slaves. We are all slaves to whatever controls our behavior. Whatever masters us. And I think we kind of know that that's true, though we live in that river down by Egypt, the Nile, right? So we all have someone or something which is our ultimate motivator. One thing we value over everything else. One thing that defines us and determines how we view or judge everything else is judged from that one thing. We all have something that is the main thing which gives us significance in our lives, which makes us feel valuable, which makes us feel like our lives are worth 
living and it's this thing that we turn to for purpose for meaning security and and comfort during those challenging times now it could be a, a career it could be family achievement approval from others a cause money all sorts of other things but whatever that something is understand that this is your real core value you know marines talk a lot about core values this is your real core value this is the center of your life and it's your first or it's your primary it's your first love in your life and what paul wants you to understand is whatever is truly your first love and not what you say your first love is but whatever your first love really is it's your spiritual master it's controlling you and you may have hoped to get something from it when you started that relationship but you have actually presented yourself to it you have offered yourself or given yourself over to it and you have grown dependent on it and you're under its control now we all serve something and Paul points out in verse 16 that there's really only two choices what he describes as sin or obedience now what does he mean by that well he's talking about the ultimate either or choice that Adam faced and failed in the Garden of Eden he's referencing the first commandment in Exodus 20 2 and 3 I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me Hopefully you're seeing the connection to our New Testament readings this morning. Um, he's also referencing in his mind the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, all of it. And Paul says you really only have two choices. You will either serve God or something else, which we would call an idol, a substitute for God to fulfill your self-centered desires which really is no substitute for God at all so you will either obey God or you will obey the demands of your idol which would be sin if you do that in fact all sin or she's full used to say is cosmic treason as you dethrone you attempt to dethrone the sovereign Lord at least for the moment while you dedicate to your to your idol and so before you've ever broken any other of God's commandments you have first broken the first commandment and the great commandment because you have chosen something over God and Jesus reminded us that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, ultimately, one thing is your true master. One thing is your true love. So when Paul says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are actually their slave? That's what he says. He's saying, can't you see it's preposterous to suggest that the law, could inspire anyone to obey God when they are being controlled by the demands of an idol, which is their real love and their real motivation. But likewise, he's saying it's ridiculous to think, it's ridiculous to think that those who have truly presented themselves to the Lord, the sovereign Lord, who is their greatest love, 
who is their real core value and the center of their lives would need a set of laws to obey when it's their heartfelt desire to do so anyway. There's no need. And you don't need a law to make you do what you want to do, right? You don't need a law to make you do what you want to do. And remember this, a law outside of you will eventually always be overpowered by whatever is in control inside of you. Okay? Now, what is in control inside of us? The Holy Spirit and the love of Christ, which is the gift of God and is more powerful than anything imaginable. Certainly more powerful than anything that might tempt you. And you need to believe that. Now, many of us are familiar or have likely memorized Galatians 5, 23. And if you sit in the front, you might be able to see those little teeny words there. But I uh, certainly had a depth perception problem when I put that slide together. But I will read it to you. Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Okay? Now, what is he saying? Well, one thing he's saying that these attributes are the natural produce or product, fruit, of the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit and God's love, not the man-made product of willpower. But also notice the bookend of the fruit of the Spirit, love and self-control. See, whatever we love controls us. And it's the love of God produced as we received God's love for us, which gives us a self-control for holy living, which requires no law. So as we present ourselves to God, abiding in or remaining in the presence of God, we are transformed by the love of God to truly obey God from a heart of genuine love. Does that make sense? Which, and this brings us to the second principle of sanctification. You experience true transformation when you practice obedience to the Lord from your heart. So first we present ourselves to the Lord, and then we practice obedience motivated by our love for the Lord. Now Paul goes on to say in verses 17 through 19, he says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification. So contrary to the concerns of many, Paul was certainly not lowering the standard or advocating for what some might call today cheap grace. Rather, he's raising that bar to the highest possible level, which is sanctification, becoming Christ-like. And he's talking about a new kind of obedience, which is really the only kind of obedience which can produce such a change in somebody's life, obedience from the heart, a heart which again was given to us by God so that we could love him and obey him. And Paul reiterates that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So in other words, the love of Christ has given us 
a love for Christ, which is driving us to righteousness, leading us to Christ-likeness. And however, he goes on to say, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Basically, now go do it. And so that kind of raises the question. If we've been set free from sin and have been made slaves to righteousness, then why do we continue to sin? And thank you. And why do we uh, need Paul to tell us now to, to go present your members? Um, why do we have to be told to dedicate ourselves to this right behavior? Well, while we had nothing to do with our justification, which Paul explained in those first five chapters of Romans, we do have a role to play in our sanctification. And while God gave us the free gift of his love and the power to love him, what we do with that gift matters. So Paul's saying that while we have been set free from the tyranny of sin, we haven't been set free from the ability to sin. And so before Christ, before we had the power of the Holy Spirit and God's love within us, we had no choice but to sin. But now sin, um, now we sin, well, frankly, because we just choose to do it. We don't have to do it. We choose to do it. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will never let us be tempted beyond our ability and always provides a way out. But we still do it. So Paul is encouraging us, as he does in Colossians 3 and in many other places in the Bible, to live the lives God has empowered us to live so we can experience the full blessing and joy of unity with him today. Today. Okay? Um, now, while, while God gives us a heart for righteousness, he calls us to grow up in righteousness by practicing and developing the habits of righteousness in our lives. As the old adage goes, practice makes perfect. So when we were sinners practicing sin, our sinfulness only made us more sinful down this road which, with an ultimate end of death. But now in Christ, as we practice love, which is the natural fulfillment of God's command, we grow in love. We grow ever closer to the God who is love. And the closer we get to him, the more we become the radiance of the glory of God. The more God's radiance, we pour out God's glory in our radiance. This is what was said of Jesus in Hebrews 1.3. And the more we will put on the new self, we put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness as described in Ephesians 4.24. Now get this, the more we obey God from the heart God has given us, the more our heart grows to want to do it. So Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 15, and 21. But now John, the former son of thunder, who was transformed by the love of Christ into the apostle of love, added this. He said, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
1 John 5.3. So John, from the experience of being transformed, is encouraging us that as we grow in the love of Christ, the things which might still be challenging for us, like forgiving others, loving our enemies, avoiding lustful thoughts or anger, will one day no longer be hard for us, but natural, will be natural. And um, Dallas Willard said it this way, true Christ-likeness, true companionship with Christ comes at a point where it is hard not to respond as he would. So the moral results, leading to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, fruitfulness is expected, and not a little fruitfulness. God-sized fruitfulness, which yields a harvest, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold, as described in Mark 4.40. Fruitfulness is God's purpose for us. Peeking ahead at Romans 7, Paul says, We are raised in Christ in order that we may bear fruit for God. Romans 7, 4. And Jesus said, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John 15, 16. That you would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. And so has, as has already been stated several times, this kind of fruitfulness that Jesus is talking about, it, he's referring to a radically changed life that looks like his life. It's Christ-likeness that he's talking about. And now, fruitfulness is not only the radical multiplication of the attributes of Christ-likeness within us, radical multiplication, but it's also the multiplication of Christ-likeness among others as Christ's image bearers go into the world imaging Christ and make disciples teaching them to observe all that I've commanded or said another way, teaching them to be like Christ. Uh, and a healthy Christian grows abundantly in Christ and a healthy church multiplies exponentially in Christ. It's natural. Healthy things blossom. And that's God's call for us. That's what he wants for us. Okay? It's what he's given us as his promise. Now, however, while we should anticipate abundant fruitfulness in our lives, we mustn't lose sight of the source of that abundance, which is Christ himself. And we must be very careful not to fall in to those old modes of thinking, which would cause us to believe that it's our efforts which cause the growth. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you could do nothing. So Jesus is saying that unless we are fully connected to him, his life pouring into our life, imagine the sap and with the vine and the branch, his life pouring into our life, his identity inseparable from our identity. The, the branch and the tree, they're the same, right? His identity, inseparable from our identity, will never be abundantly fruitful. So understanding our relationship to Christ and abiding in that relationship or living in it, that relationship is the life of the Christian, and it's the life of the church. It's the power of transformation, and it's the power 
of multiplication. And what is this fruitfulness? I mean, just think about it naturally. What is fruitfulness? It's the externally visible product of the vine emanating from the branch as, as it comes out of the branch and that has no practical or tangible benefit to the branch itself. I mean, uh, the, the branch gets nothing out of the fruit that it produces other than the fulfillment of its purpose to multiply this life into the world. And it's purely sacrificial. I hope we see the picture here because Jesus uses it. Fruitfulness is something that isn't done mechanically or procedurally. It happens supernaturally, but in a natural way. As God's spirit empowers us to translate his invisible qualities into the tangible world through acts of love. Can we see this? However, it's very tempting for us to start focusing on how well we're doing producing fruit that we begin to lose sight or lose focus of our critical, our vital, our essential connection or communion to Christ. So for those of you here this morning who may feel discouraged by a lack of fruitfulness in your life, I would encourage you to concentrate on abiding rather than striving. Or as someone once said, be a root inspector in your life rather than a fruit inspector in your life. So the, uh, this morning, our main point was that you experience true transformation when you, one, present yourself to the Lord, two, practice obedience to the Lord from your heart, and three, produce the fruit of God's love in your life. Those three Ps, present, practice, and produce. But the biggest thing that I want you to remember is the secret to steps two and steps three, which are practice and produce, is to focus on step one. Present yourself to the Lord. And that doesn't mean a quick check-in, quick prayer, and a check-out. No, it means present yourself to the Lord and stay there. Stay in the presence of the Lord and serve him in his presence. And behold the glory of the Lord and let his presence transform you. That connection, that vital life coming through from him to you, stay there. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. His beholding him is life changing. And you're changing from one degree to another. It's exciting. And this verse ends, for this comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now, we're soon going to partake in the Lord's Supper, which is an act of communion among believers. And if you were here this morning and you are not a Christian, as those who have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ partake of this Lord's Supper, my hope for you is that you will Pray a, a simple prayer to God that he would give you faith in his son that you may experience the joy of eternal life in him today and into eternity. Now, no special words are required, 
just speak to him, your perfectly loving father, in a way which comes naturally to you, and, and he's going to answer your prayer. And if you have a question about what you've heard today, I hope that after the service, you'll, you'll find one of our members to talk with you and to pray with you afterwards. And this morning, if you are a believer in Christ, I hope that you will pray this morning that God will help you to more fully abide in him, that you may fully obey him from a heart of love and produce the fruit of Christ's likeness in, in your life to his glory uh, to the world around you. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, I do pray that you would help us to truly present ourselves to you and remain in your presence as we practice your presence by practicing wholehearted loving obedience to you, rejoicing continuously as we produce the fruit of Christ's likeness in our lives, experiencing total fulfillment as we serve our life's purpose of glorifying you and enjoying you forever. And I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Thank you.